0: Good morning, everyone. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, as our sacrifice and example. And thank you for raising him in power from the dead. We pray that you would shape and transform us by these truths. Amen so i'd like to start today with part of a sermon that the reverend martin luther king preached in 1956 he said in your struggle for justice let your oppressor know that you are not attempting to defeat excuse me or humiliate him or even to pay him back for injustices that he has heaped upon you let him know that you are merely seeking justice for him as well as for yourself. Let him know that the festering sore of segregation debilitates the white man as well as the Negro. With this attitude, you will be able to keep your struggle on high Christian standards. Many persons will realize the urgency of seeking to eradicate the evil of segregation. There will be many Negroes who will devote their lives to the cause of freedom. There will be many white persons of goodwill and strong moral sensitivity who will dare to take a stand for justice. Honesty impels me to admit that such a stand will require willingness to suffer and sacrifice. So don't despair if you are condemned and persecuted for righteousness' sake. Whenever you take a stand for truth and justice, you are liable to scorn. Often you'll be called an impractical idealist or a dangerous radical. Sometimes it might mean going to jail. If such is the case, you must honorably grace the jail with your presence. It might even mean physical death. But if physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent life of psychological death, then nothing could be more Christian. I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. I still believe that love is the most durable power in the world. Over the centuries, men have sought to discover the highest good. I think I have discovered the highest good. It is love. This principle stands at the center of the cosmos. As John says, God is love. He who loves is a participant in the being of God. He who hates does not know God. So you'll notice that. Reverend King was well aware of the potential consequences of the stand that he was taking. He was clear that standing up for truth and justice would mean scorn and that it could mean death. He was clear-eyed about the potential cost of approaching the struggle for justice as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. And we all know that for Reverend King, this commitment to be faithful to Jesus would ultimately result in his death. So a question that has a lot to do with our passage for today is this. Was Martin Luther King a winner or a loser? And it's actually easier to answer that question, I think, in hindsight, than it would have been in the moment. if you would put yourselves in the place of those around him at the time, where some of the results of his work were yet to be seen, how would we answer that question? So I'd suggest that the way that we answer that question depends largely on our world view. So Reverend King said that the principle that love is the highest good stands at the center of the cosmos. And that statement, that reflects a worldview, it, and it's a worldview shaped by Jesus. It's, it's a perspective on what the most fundamental nature of reality is. The Mennonite theologian John Howard Yoder picked up on this aspect of, of Reverend King when he talked about how we should think about his, his success and, and his death. And he said, To say with King that love is the most durable power in the world or that there is something in the universe that unfolds for justice, is not to claim a sure insight into the way that martyrdom works as a social power, although martyrdom often does that. It's a confessional statement made by those whose loyalty to Christ, they understand to be validated by its cosmic ground. In other words, their loyalty to Christ is validated by the fact that it is rooted in the most fundamental truths about reality the way the world really is. So Yuder continues, suffering love is not right because it works in any calculable, short-run way, although it often does. It is right because it goes with the grain of the universe. And that is why, in the long run, nothing else will work. So this worldview that love is the highest good, that God is love, and that that stands at the center of the universe, that's not our only option for a worldview. There are many alternatives on option. For example, Friedrich Nietzsche's worldview, which is massively influential today, whether people know that it's influencing them or not, is almost exactly the opposite of what Reverend King expressed there. Nietzsche did not see love as the foundation of the cosmos, but power. He thought that there was a time and place for restraining ourselves from injuring, abusing, or exploiting one another, shore. But to make this a basic principle of society would be a denial of life, in his view. He said, life itself, in its essence, means appropriating, injuring, overpowering those who are foreign and weaker. Oppression, harshness, forcing one's own forms on others, incorporation, and at the very least, at the very mildest, exploitation. For Nietzsche, a social body that was really alive would have to be the will to power incarnate. It would want to grow, reach out around itself, pull toward itself, gain the upper hand, not out of some morality or immorality, but because it is alive, he said, and because life simply is the will to power. It's a very different worldview. Nietzsche would have seen Reverend King as a loser. Again, our perspective on this depends on our worldview, on our cosmology, our understanding of the way the world really is, and in light of what we talked about last week, on our eschatology. Are we living, or do we believe that the present evil age is all that there is? Nietzsche did. God was dead as far as he was concerned, and there was no resurrection. We had killed him. Alternatively, are we living as though the age to come really has broken in in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Are we living like new creation has begun, and is yet to come in its fullness. These things don't just affect our view of Martin Luther King. They affect our view of Paul. They affect our view of Jesus. And I think that's actually the point of the passage that we're going to be reading today. It's a very dense passage that can be difficult to understand on the first pass, and so we're going to unpack it by looking at how it compares to other places, other passages in Paul. And so let's read what Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 2. He says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in a triumphal procession in Christ, and makes known through us the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For it is Christ we are the fragrance of, to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the latter, it is an aroma from death to death. To the former, an aroma from life to life. And who is qualified for such things? For we are not, like the many, peddling the word of God, but proclaim it out of sincerity. Indeed, as people sent from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. So now, the first thing to unpack as we look at this passage is simply the background. What will will become more clear as the letter goes on is that Paul is defending his apostleship, and specifically his form of other-centered, self-giving, suffering apostleship, against the attacks of much more... um, Polished, well spoken, uh, highly regarded, what he calls super apostles, people who were essentially competing and trying to usurp his place in the Corinthian congregation. Okay, these people, these super apostles, lived according to the values of the present evil age, okay, of competition, of self assertion, working your way up the status hierarchy. They wanted to become the top dog, so to speak, at the expense of others. They had the fancy resume, the right credentials, like I said, the polished speech and appearance. They had made it. Okay? They were winners. They were the kinds of people that you would want to show off to the world around you as your teachers. And this was very appealing to the Corinthian congregation. Okay, so that's the background. Paul is is defending his form of ministry against these people who are seeking to usurp it. The second thing to unpack is the nature of Paul's gospel message. This message is different than the worldview and the wisdom of the present evil age. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is actually precisely the kind of eschatology that we talked about last week. For Paul, the age to come has been ushered in through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He lives by the values of the age to come rather than the values of the present evil age, rather than the values and the wisdom of the world. The present age with its fallen values lives on, it persists, but it is passing away. It is coming to an end. It is fading. Paul's opening metaphor here is of a victorious general's victory procession. The images of God having conquered and Paul and his fellow workers as God's willing captives. The idea that God has conquered, that Jesus is Lord, is always what lies at the foundation of Paul's gospel, his good news. And the significant contrast between Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus, and other gospels on offer, like the gospel of Caesar, is that it has to do with the way that Jesus conquers. Paul's message about Jesus is the message of the cross. The knowledge of God in Christ that Paul is spreading everywhere is that message. So in 1 Corinthians 1... Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, if you listen closely and attend to the language that Paul uses here, you'll see that it's almost identical to what Paul is saying in our passage in 2 Corinthians 2 this morning. In 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. All right, contrast that with 2 Corinthians. It is Christ we are the fragrance of to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the latter, it is an aroma from death to death, to the former, an aroma from life to life. So this parallel to 1 Corinthians sheds light on what Paul is saying in our passage. The fragrance of Christ is the message of the cross. Paul's gospel, that Jesus is Lord, is also the message of the cross. And those who are perishing, right, to those who are perishing to the Caesars and to the niches of the world. The cross and gospel don't go together. Losers don't become lord. That's foolishness to the world, and it's foolishness to the rulers of this age. But it's not foolishness to Paul. It's not foolishness to those who are being saved, who have heard and believed the message that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's the resurrection that demonstrates to us the fact that this is actually true wisdom, God's wisdom, God's power. All right, so the background of this letter is Paul defending himself against um, much more polished winners. Um, The message that he is spreading is the message of the cross and its foolishness to the rulers of this age. A third thing to unpack is this language of aromas. Paul says that as willing captives in God's victory procession, he and his fellow workers spread the knowledge of God through the message of Jesus to people everywhere. And he describes this message with the image of an aroma, smell, a scent. He says, for it is Christ we are the fragrance of, to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the latter, it is an aroma from death to death, the former, an aroma from life to life. Paul uses this, that word for aroma in two other places. He uses it in Ephesians 5.2 and in Philippians 4.18. In Ephesians he says, walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a pleasing aroma. This is Christ's others centered self-giving love others centered self-giving love that sacrificial others centered self-giving love is a was a pleasing aroma to God in Philippians 4 he says but i have received everything in abound i'm fully supplied having received from epaphroditus the things you sent a pleasing aroma an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So the Philippians, others-centered, self-giving love for Paul, expressed through their gift to him, is a pleasing aroma, an acceptable sacrifice to God. All right, so Paul's usage of this word is otherwise in the context of others-centered, self-giving love in the form of sacrifice. Okay, the aroma of these sacrifices... What Paul is saying is that in his own cross-shaped ministry, he participates in Christ. Paul, Paul emphasizes Christ with his syntax here. He brings it forward so that it's the first word in the sentence. And I've tried to reflect that in my translation, since we can do a similar thing in English. That's why I say, "It is Christ we are the fragrance of." That's where Paul's emphasis is. It's on Christ. It is Christ. That we are the fragrance of. Paul's ministry gives off the aroma of Christ's own other-centered self-giving sacrifice to God. All right, and we see this, this concept of participation elsewhere in Paul. In Philippians, again, in chapter three. It says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. To become like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. In 2 Corinthians 1, the beginning of this letter, he says, for just as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. It's Christ's own sufferings abounding in Paul and his fellow workers. And then later on in this letter, where Paul is going, in chapter 4 he says, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. As far as Paul is concerned, his understanding is that he participates... In his suffering ministry, he participates in Christ's death and life. And in doing this, he gives off the aroma of Christ to God. All right, so to kind of summarize this unpacking we've done so far, Paul's cross-shaped ministry is being defended against the attacks of these status-focused, self-centered, self-asserting super-apostles. We've unpacked that Paul is spreading the message of the cross wherever he goes. It's a message that's foolishness to the rulers of this age. And we've unpacked that Paul's cross-shaped ministry is a participation in Christ's death and life. In addition to the message that he spreads about Jesus, about the cross, the form and nature, the character, the style of Paul's ministry gives off that sacrificial aroma of Christ and Christ's other-centered self-giving love. So now that we've unpacked those things, I think we can get into our our passage more directly. And that has to do with how that aroma is perceived. How this aroma is perceived depends on a person's worldview, on a person's cosmology, on a person's understanding of the nature of reality. So let's look at the language that Paul uses here. He says that the message of Jesus is an aroma from death to death to those who are perishing, but it's an aroma from life to life among those who are being saved. That from to um, construction is seen a few other places in Paul. It's seen here in, in 2 Corinthians 2. It's seen again in chapter 3. And it's also seen in Romans 1. And so in all three of those places, I'd suggest that Paul has the same thing in mind. What he's saying is that something originates in Jesus, and then it's produced in his followers. Something originates in Jesus, and it's produced in his followers. So in Romans 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, or faithfulness, to faith. For faithfulness. In Romans, and this is a much larger discussion, but the, the main point, this, that passage is a kind of thesis statement to the whole thing. And that whole letter is phrased, the very first verses and the very last verses, talk about this obedience of faith being brought about in the Gentiles, in the nations. In the first couple of verses, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God regarding his son. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Opening words to the letter to the Romans. Closing words. He says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, which has been made known to all the Gentiles in the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. This letter is about the obedience of faith being produced in people. And that faith or faithfulness originates in Jesus. It's, Christ, it's the righteousness of God demonstrated in Christ's faithfulness that produces that faith or faithfulness in believers. Biblical scholar Michael Gorman puts it this way. For in the gospel, God's saving covenant faithfulness is revealed through the faithfulness of Christ to generate faithfulness among those who hear it. Okay. So it's from Christ's own faithfulness to our own faithfulness. What originates in Christ is produced in us. So here in 2 Corinthians, Paul says um, in, in chapter 3, which we'll be getting to shortly, he says, But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So in both the analogy of Moses in this passage, as well as what Paul says is happening with believers, you've got the same thing going on. The glory originates in what they look at and is then produced in them. So Moses had spoken with Yahweh, that glory originates with Yahweh, and it's then produced in Moses' own face so that he has to wear a veil. Similarly, Paul says, when a believer turns to the Lord, it's the glory that originates in Jesus, is then reproduced in the believer as he is transformed from the glory of Jesus into the glory of that own person, as that glory is reproduced in the believer. All right, so let's put this all together now. Paul says, For it is Christ we are the fragrance of, to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the latter, it is an aroma from death to death. To the former, an aroma from life to life. When people see the suffering, cross-shaped ministry of Paul, what do they see? It depends on what they see when they look at Jesus. Paul didn't have the flair and the status of the super apostles. He wasn't about dominating others or looking better than others or self-promotion, like the winners in the eyes of Greco-Roman society were. And that was because Paul proclaimed the message of a crucified Savior. Having encountered the resurrected Christ, Paul knew that this was the wisdom of God, even though it appeared to be foolishness to the rulers of this age. Paul had put his faith in a crucified Messiah and had been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And in doing that, his life, his ministry had taken on the shape of the cross. It had taken on the characteristics of Christ's own ministry, of Christ's own sacrificial death. It was a kind of participation in that suffering. And therefore, it gave off the aroma of Christ to God and to the world around him. And since Paul gave off the scent, the smell, the aroma of Christ, what the world saw when it looked at him, as it does when it looks at anybody who is following Jesus in this way and lives a cross-shaped life. What they saw when they looked at him depended on what they saw when they looked at Jesus. Those who were still thinking according to the wisdom of this age, those who are perishing, who do not understand that Christ's death leads to resurrection, that it has ushered in the age to come, they smell an aroma from death to death. They see the weakness, the failure, the death of Jesus producing weakness, failure, and death in his followers. They see people following a crucified leader to a similar fate of death. They see losers. But for those who are thinking according to God's wisdom, for those who are being saved, who have had their worldview and eschatology transformed by resurrection, they smell an aroma from life to life. They do see a people united to Jesus in his death, it's true, but in this union they see the resurrection life of Jesus, producing resurrection life in his followers. They see people following a resurrected Lord to a similar fate of resurrection life. They see eschatological winners whose suffering love goes with the grain of the universe. Christ is ushered in the age to come in his resurrection. But the present evil age still persists. As in Corinth, so in Jericho. There are still super apostles who think in terms of the wisdom of this age who court the church with promises of status and success and power, who promise us that they can show us how to win without a cross. Crosses are for losers, after all. And who wants to be a loser? What scent do we smell when we encounter Jesus? When we encounter Paul? When we encounter people like Reverend King? who took the words of Jesus and and the example of Paul seriously. Do we smell an aroma from death to death or life to life? What path will we take? What choices will we make? What aroma will we give off to God? And in particular, when we interact with those outside our walls, right, especially our enemies, what will our lives look like? appropriating, injuring, overpowering those who are foreign and weaker, oppression, harshness, forcing our own forms on others, reaching out, pulling towards, gaining the upper hand? is that's an option. Or, alternatively, will we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, not being conformed to this age, but having our worldview, cosmology and eschatology transformed as God renews our minds by his spirit resurrection people in others centered self giving lives follow a resurrected Lord to resurrection life let me pray dear Jesus thank you that you came and that you paved the way before us thank you that you showed us that a new way is possible thank you that you send us your spirit to transform us to renew us and to help us to understand these things and to live this way we pray that you would give us the courage the empowerment to live out our lives as resurrection people in the world around us as we go out from these walls. Amen.